0: Hey guys, it's your host Sam Thornton. Before this episode begins, I wanted to promote the DL Sports Instagram page. The page has a wide variety of sports content with graphics, reels, highlights and more. So before this episode begins, what I want you guys to do is go ahead, pull out your phone and follow the Instagram page at dLsportscom. That's at C-O-M. Thanks guys and enjoy the show. On today's episode of On the DL Podcast, we have an interview with Sports Illustrated baseball writer Nick Selby. We discussed the MLB trade deadline in depth. We have some fantasy football talk. We're going to go through Alabama's schedule for this season and debate whether I think they'll go undefeated, some other general football news, and then finish up with some smaller news topics. As always, we have a lot to get into, so let's not waste any time and get this episode underway. Welcome to episode number seven of On the Deal podcast, and fantasy football is officially here. If you guys follow the DL Sports Instagram page and you listen to my previous episode, you notice that I posted the official DL Sports fantasy football draft board. I have my top 50 best available players, top 20 players for all positions, top 10 defenses and special teams and then I also have for you guys my favorite top 10 sleeper picks that you should definitely consider in the later rounds of your fantasy draft. If you follow this board I guarantee you will find success in your league this season that is a promise I'm making to you guys. I want to go through all of the positions with you guys first so let's look at the top 20 for all positions and then we can take a look at the sleepers and then I'll give it my analysis of how I conducted the best 50 players available to finish all of this up for you guys. So first, let's start with the running backs because to me and to many other experts out there, they will agree that the running back position is the most valuable slash most important slot on your roster for fantasy football. I do have 20 running backs selected on this list, but we're going to say the top 10 right now. And I will mention the other two, if you have a fantasy draft with 10 to 12 people, a league with 10 to 12 people, that's usually going to be your running back one. So I'm going to go over the top 10 right now because those will be your first running back or your RB1s within your league. The later 10 will be your second slot, which is still very valuable, but it's most important to solidify your running back one out of all your positions on your roster. So here's my top 10 for you guys. Number one, Jonathan Taylor. Second, Derrick Henry. Three, Christian McCaffrey. Fourth, we have Austin Eckler. At the five slot, we have Najee Harris. Sixth, Dalvin Cook, followed by Alvin Kamara at seventh. Eight, Joe Mixon. Nine, DeAndre Swift. And to finish off the top ten, I have Javante Williams. So these ten backs should be, in my opinion, your RB1 within your league, whether you have pick one to ten, If you have a 10-person league, that will be your top 10. Those will be the guys you want to look for. It's best to select a dominant back first. I think if you look at the one and two slots, you have Taylor and Henry. Taylor with the Colts, Henry with the Titans. You could definitely flip a coin here. Both are very dominant players. Taylor broke out last year, and I don't think he's going to regress at all, especially with Indy's O-line and their dynamic offense with uh, Matty Ice. They have Matt Ryan now. Henry, as we know, got injured last last season, but it was the first time he's ever sustained a serious injury within his career in the NFL. So he's a very durable back who, as we know, runs the ball a lot with the Titans offense. And I think they'll run him into the ground again with the dismissal of Julio Jones and A.J. Brown at the receiver position. You can't go wrong with either of them. They'll win you games. I've gotten some hate with Christian McCaffrey at three. I think the, it, he could definitely be the riskiest pick due to how many times he's been injured recently over the last few seasons. But I think the upside of his position, if he's healthy and ready to go, we know what he's capable of from a fantasy aspect of the game. He's a dynamic back with lots of elements in his game. He can receive the ball. He can run the ball. He can get you points in a lot of different ways. He can be a machine, but that is for sure the biggest gamble and risk you're going to take in your drafting strategy. So the choice is yours, really. As for slots four through eight, I think all are very similar in production. I just gave the edge to certain players, but you can really jumble those players wherever you want to. Eckler, I think, is a great pick. I have him fourth in my draft board. The Chargers offense is outstanding, and their O-line is great. So I think that the offense, when you look at the Chargers offense and you look at Eckler, that relationship is going to be key, and I think the offense is going to explode this year. They could even... You can make definitely the argument that they are the best in the NFL. I know a lot of experts believe that the Chargers will have the best offense in the NFL. Harris, I think, will be a terrific fantasy player. He's going to have to carry the ball a lot this year, and he could be dynamic as well. He can catch the ball on routes and checkdowns. So he can give you points in many different ways as well. Dalvin Cook was a disappointment last year. Uh, He was my first overall pick in the draft last season and struggled early on. Then he got hurt. And he only came on really late in the year, only had a few really good games for me. I think that he's going to be better this year, but that's another gamble, especially with Jefferson and Thielen and the Vikings offensive arsenal already. They already have some guys that, you know, Kirk Cousins is going to look to more than running the ball. Alvin Kamara and Mixon, both great picks, great solid picks. You can't go wrong with either of those guys. Those are very safe picks, I believe. Both of those offenses, especially the Bengals, I think will be elite this year as they were last year. Those two, like I said, are very safe choices, and you can have that in your pocket. If you have the 8 or the 7 pick, that's a good place to be. DeAndre Swift at 9 I think is an amazing choice. I think he could be one of the best fantasy players this season that not a lot of people are really talking about. I always hated playing against him last year in matches because he would always put up points no matter what. He would always fill up the stat sheet. He'll have another big year, so definitely look out for him. Javante Williams on the Broncos, again, I think is a solid pick. Any of these guys are good, but like I said, you need to be careful with Christian McCaffrey and Dalvin Cook out of that top 10 when you look at the top 10 I have. They could end up being terrific or they could end up being terrible. And this list is based off potential and upside. So make sure you understand that first before you draft. Very important. Let me say that again. I think that this list really is based off potential and upside. So when I made this list, I looked at, hmm, you know, what is the what is the biggest upside for these players? If these players break out, this is where they're going to end up on this draft board. So make sure you do understand that that is how I... This draft board off of so please don't mention me when it's week five and Christian McCaffrey hasn't had a 20 point game and gets injured in the fourth week of the season Quickly, I think some good running backs in the tw- in the 10 to 20 list or 11 to 20 list I should say that you can really rely on for your running back two, and It could also be your running back one for these first two Nick Chubb. I think he could be a running back one if you're in a 12 person league. Josh Jacobs is a solid running back too. Leonard Fournette with the Bucs has, has been terrific. Cam Akers with the Rams I think is a sneaky good back and a good running back too. Out of this list where I have in the top 20, I would definitely try to stay away from Saquon Barkley and Ezekiel Elliott. I think those guys have lived out their glory days. Zeke hasn't looked great in camp. He looks a little bit out of shape, not really sure what his game is going to be like this year. Um, so be aware of that. Be aware of those two guys. All right, now let's dissect the receiver slot. The great thing is that there are so many amazing receivers in the NFL, so if you don't get you know, the top three to five guys that you're really hoping to draft, it's really not that big of a deal because the wide receiver slot is by far the deepest position in the league. So here is my top ten for receivers. Number one, we have Cooper Cup, followed by Jamar Chase at number two. Then we have Justin Jefferson at the three slot. Fourth, we have Stephon Diggs. Five, we have Devontae Adams. Then we have Debo Samuel at six. At seven, we have C.D. Lamb. Eight, Tyreek Hill. Then we have Keenan Allen at nine. And then to finish out the top 10, we have Mike Evans. So off the bat, looking at this list, all of these guys are amazing talents. If you decide to go wide receiver heavy, that's honestly not a bad deal. In today's game, receivers are contributing much more than they used to. I was actually a wide receiver heavy team last year, and I made it to the championship game after starting 0-4. So thanks to two players, which were Jamar Chase and Debo Samuel, I was able to find success. So first we have Cooper Cup, who won the Triple Crown for receivers last year. Amazing player. Many people out there say he's not going to be as productive because defenses have figured out his game. But if someone's going to tell you something, what do they know about it? How, how do they know that information? Nobody is going to slow this guy down. He's one of the best receivers in the game. These guys never slow down. Even if they do, he is not going to be slowed down significantly. So I have Cup first. Then I have Jamar Chase. Chase is incredible. Like I said, he was on my team last year. There were occasions last season when I would be down 35 points heading into the final game of the week, maybe on a Monday night and he would put up 40 to 45 points for me, and I would win the game and win my match that week solely on one performance. Him and Burrow have that special connection all the way back from the LSU days, and it's going to keep thriving and thriving year in and year out. And I think it will, again, improve this season. Him and Jefferson, who is at three, I think are very similar players. I think you could swap either of those guys out. Jefferson is great, and you should grab him if you can. Diggs is an amazing player with Josh Allen at the fourth slot, but hopefully Gabriel Davis and Isaiah McKenzie don't get too much love with that offense. Adams, Devontae Adams, I think of course is electric. And I think him and Carr will be on the same page with that new duo. Maybe the best value pick you can get in this top 10 is Debo Samuel at the sixth slot, who is way more than just a receiver. He's really a flex guy. He can run the ball. He can throw the ball. We saw him throw the ball in certain plays last year. He can go deep for receptions. He's one of the most fun players to watch in the NFL. As for CeeDee Lamb and Tyreek Hill, these guys you're going to have to keep an eye on. Both have new roles. Hill, as we know, is with Tua on the Dolphins, and we have to see how he's going to perform from here on out. Lamb is the new wide receiver one in Dallas. He's He's their new number one option after Amari Cooper has left for Cleveland. So now we have to see if he can carry that load and carry those double teams for his production. That's a question that a lot of people have been debating: Is he going to be able to carry that load? You know, be able to have that not as much space in the open field that like he used to with his production last year. So definitely keep an eye on that. Keenan Allen and Mike Evans both great for those nine and ten slot. I think early on, especially Mike Evans will be a terrific player with Chris Godwin out. He's a terrific red zone player, so if you pick him and you want to pick Mike Evans, that's a great pick because he gets a touchdown pretty much every game, no question. If you want to look at the 11 to 20 players, here's a handful of guys that I really like. Um, I like DJ Moore out of Carolina. He's number one receiver in Carolina with Baker Mayfield, most likely going to start this year. You have Terry McLaurin. From Washington, their number one receiver, just got an extension this offseason. Terrific player, terrific talent. Mike Williams. Mike Williams is a guy that I had on my team last year. And when he is on, he is incredible. He will get you so many points. He will get you – I had instances last year where he got me 35 to 40 points. And then the next week he would get me five points, or he would get me two points. So Mike Williams is a person, a player – you really have to know it's going to be an up-and-down player for you. But I think with his extension this offseason, I think a little bit of that could change. I think he's solidified as their number two target. I think they're going to give him more receptions, more targets this season. So Mike Williams is a guy that I think could definitely be really good value at his slot. Lastly, I have Amara St. Brown. He was a rookie last year, surprised so many different people. He looks like he's going to be their number one receiver. He's going to be paired up with Jared Goff. And also they have Jameson Williams joining that team. I think he is a great player. You should definitely keep an eye on him as well. As for quarterbacks, quarterback is an important slot, but definitely behind the ball with running backs and wide receivers. It's good to have a sound QB, but you don't necessarily have to have the flashiest players to have a good team at all. So here's my top 10 real quickly with the quarterbacks number one I have Josh Allen followed by Patrick Mahomes second then I have Justin Herbert at the three slot followed by Lamar Jackson at number four five I have Joe Burrow six I have Jalen Hurts seven Kyler Murray eight Russell Wilson nine Tom Brady and then to finish out the top ten I have Dak Prescott any of these guys are good. I think Allen is going to be an absolute sight to watch this season. His efficiency is just crazy, and he can run the ball as well. Mahomes, of course, we know is we know what he is capable of. He's an he's just an alien on the field. Herbert, I think, could win MVP this season. And like I said earlier, the Chargers could be the best offense in the NFL. That entire division, the AFC West, is just stacked offensively. Lamar, I think, is going to be a great fantasy quarterback solely based off his running ability. Burrow is going to be great. Hertz was awesome last year, and I think the Eagles have a big year in store for them, so he would be a really good selection. I think a lot of people wouldn't really notice at first in their draft selections. Kyler. Kyler Murray is going to be great early on in the season, so you'd you'd love him, I think, up until October, but that's always when things get shaky for him, so... That's a gamble you're going to have to take out of that top 10. Russell Wilson, I think he's going to be terrific. He had kind of a down year last season, and I had him on my team. And um, he struggled with Seattle, but I don't really blame him. That team offensively wasn't the best. And I think this new team with the Broncos, I think he's going to thrive in that environment. With Jerry Judy, Corlin Sutton, uh, Javante Williams to run the ball to. So I think that offense is going to be really good. Then Brady and Prescott, both are solid picks. Uh, Really, any of these guys are good. I mean, I I truly mean that. Um, If we look at the 11 to 20 guys, I think you could find value in Derek Carr, especially with that offense they've assembled. I think he could even be a quarterback one. Trey Lance could be a huge hit this season for fantasy and production-wise. I think you should for sure buy stock in Trey Lance value. I'm very high on him. Then I also think Kurt Cousins is always a solid pick, too. With the receivers he has, and Adam Thielen, Justin Jefferson, he, d- he has good weapons around. I mean, he's, al- he's always been a solid, average quarterback, so he's, he's a good person to have on your team. You really want to focus your QB1, and then any of these top 12 guys that I mentioned are solid players, so you'll be fine with one of them. I really wouldn't stress too much about the quarterback slot. As for the defense, I'm just going to look over the top 10 real quick. Really, any of these selections are solid for you guys. Number 1, I have Bills, 2nd, Buccaneers, 3rd, Saints, 4th, Rams, 5th, Packers, 6th, 49ers, 7th, Colts, 8th, Ravens, Ninth slot, I have Cowboys, and then 10th, I have the Dolphins. And then, if you want to look at the tight ends, I really think that the best value for tight ends, obviously, Travis Kelsey, Mark Andrews, those are the top two guys, 3rd, I have Kyle Pitts, 4th, Darren Waller, 5th, George Kittle, I think those top five guys are obviously the guys that you want to have or ideally would want to have, but clearly you can't get all of them. So I think some good sleeper tight ends later on is Irv Smith Jr. from Minnesota, Hunter Henry out of New England, Dawson Knox out of Buffalo. I think those guys could definitely be some sleepers that you could get later on in the draft. And then if you want to look at the top 50, I really am not going to go into a lot of detail right now, just because we're that's gonna that would take a while. So if you want to look at the top fifty, go to the DL Sports Instagram page. That's at dlsports.com. Look at one of the most recent posts. I have my fantasy draft board up there, and I have my top fifty listed on the first slide for you guys. I really did base it off of wide receivers and running backs for almost all of it. I slipped in some tight ends there, such as Kelsey Pitts and Waller. But go check that out if you want to see all of it. There were some quarterbacks at the end there, so follow that top 50 list for your early picks. I think it's really going to be good for you guys. As for sleepers, uh, the Diamond and the Rough players that are super important to take note of, I have 10 guys here that I think could be huge for you that were not on the top 50 list, or they were also not spoken about when I was just dissecting all these positions. So here they are. Drake London at one. He's a wide receiver rookie out of USC playing for the Falcons. I think the Falcons are going to have limited options at the wide receiver position this year. So I think that Desmond Ritter or Marcus Mariota, whoever gets the nod, is going to definitely be targeting him a lot. Him and Kyle Pitts. So that's who I have at one. Brees Hall running back out of Iowa State for the Jets. I think he could be an absolute sleeper rookie pick. So two rookies off the bat. Then we have A.J. Dillon at the three slot, uh, running back two for the Green Bay Packers outside of Aaron Jones, backing him up. Travis Etienne for Jacksonville out of Clemson. Remember last year was supposed to be his rookie season, but he got injured before the season began, so he was out the whole year, could not play. I think he's going to be a really good player for them. Sky Moore, another rookie out of Wyoming for the Kansas City Chiefs. I think he's gonna get some targets. Six, we have Alan Lazard. Alan Lazard is gonna be huge this year for the Green Bay Packers. Huge. With the dismissal of Devontae Adams. They really Aaron Rodgers really only has a few options to pass the ball to. One of the options, number one, that comes to mind is Alan Lazard. So Alan Lazard is gonna get a ton of targets this year. So be on the lookout for him. Juju Smith Schuster is now with the Kansas City Chiefs. I think he's going to get a fresh new start. You know, he did get clowned a lot last year, and I think that people in Pittsburgh were fed up with him. So I think that he's going to get a fresh new start in Kansas City with one of the best quarterbacks in the league in Patrick Mahomes. So I think Juju Smith-Schuster could be a great sleeper pick later on in your draft. K.J. Osborne from Minnesota is the third receiving option in Minnesota for Kirk Cousins. Good talent, young receiver, Think he could definitely get some targets this year, so look out for him. Garrett Wilson, rookie for the Jets out of Ohio State. I think he could get a ton of targets as well. And then to wrap up the top 10, I have James Cook drafted to Buffalo out of Georgia, running back. He can get points in a lot of different ways. I think if they utilize him correctly, he might or might not get a lot of targets. We'll see what happens with that offense. That offense is stacked with the bills. So if they do utilize him like they did at Georgia, he can go for deep balls. He can go for checkdowns. He can get points in a lot of different ways. So look out for James cook. If it's one of your last picks, might as well just pick him up. Now let's dive into a college football debate. We are 12 days away from the college football season guys, just 12 short days away. I posted this question on the DL Sports Instagram story a few days ago, I asked if Alabama will go undefeated this season. I put a poll up and you wanna know what the results were? It was fifty two percent yes to forty eight percent no. So it was very close result. But now I'm gonna give my thoughts on this question. The answer is yes. Alabama's gonna go undefeated this season. They will win the national championship. And not only that, I think this team Will be the best team to ever exist in the game of college football this team will be better than alabama in 2020 it will be better than lsu in 2019 it will be better than 2001 miami 2008 florida whatever team you want to bring up it really does not matter to me that is how confident i feel about this alabama team and if you want to compare players and schemes from this team to 2020s fine let's take a look bryce young Just as good, if not better, than Mac Jones. And yeah, they are different players, different kinds of quarterbacks, but I think that Bryce Young is a generational talent. Jameer Gibbs, from what I heard in camp, has been electrifying. And his play from Georgia Tech and the ACC speaks for itself when you look at him and you look at his highlights that are all over the place, and you compare him to Najee Harris. The receiving core... I do have to give the nod to the 2020 team with Smith, Waddle, and Mechie. But this team did obtain a lot of transfers from the transfer portal, such as Jermaine Burton, Tyler Harrell, and Ja'Cory Brooks is still there too. The offense is very, very good. And as for the defense, the defense is better than the 2020 team with veteran guys who are going to raise absolute hell on opposing offensive lines. Good luck stopping Will Anderson, Dallas Turner, not to mention the middle of the field is anchored by Henry Toto and Jordan Battle. It's going to be a hard team to beat defensively. It's going to be hard to score points against them. Secondary is going to improve, but you really have to, you know, look at the solid guys you have in Kool-Aid McKentry who learned a lot from last season. He's going to be a sophomore this year and transfer from LSU Eli Ricks. Now I've made my case And this is all potential based. I know that this take can come back to bite me if I'm wrong, but this team won't be a disappointment. Let's look at their schedule this season. When you take a quick look, there are three games that in which I see that could be troublesome. Those three games are week two at Texas, week five at Arkansas, and then week six at home against Texas A&M. Now, why do these games give notice to me? Well, there's two reasons here. The first is because they are all in the first half of the season, which is tough considering you're still clicking and gelling as a team and you're going through this gauntlet of games. The other reason is because these opponents are good. These are good teams that you're playing against. If I had to choose one game I'm most worried about, it would be week two at Texas. This is new enemy territory. We've never been there before. Alabama has never been to Texas to play in this atmosphere. It's a new atmosphere, a new team, a brand new beginning, into a potential new rivalry, which is coming very soon with Texas entering the SEC. This will be before Texas falls off a cliff, and they have three losses on their season. So the hype around Texas is going to be very much alive. So they're going to be up. They're going to be motivated to play in front of a sold-out crowd in Austin. This will be a really hard test for Alabama. I always bring up the Florida game from last year because you can compare that atmosphere to this Texas game. Both were decent teams. Texas is going to be a decent team. Florida was a decent team last year, early on in the season especially, and they have electric stadiums. Alabama almost blew that game last year in Gainesville early in the season. I think that was week three or four, and this is only week two. I know that the A&M game... Will be Alabama's biggest game of the year with all the drama surrounding Jimbo and Saban but I just have a better feeling about that game than this Texas game with just uncertainty early on in the season but I just know that this team is going to be ready in front of all the fans in Tuscaloosa come October 8th when they play Texas A&M sometimes you just know when Saban is going to have the guys ready and I think that's going to be the case for this game both of those teams Alabama and A&M could be undefeated heading into that game. So it's going to be a dogfight for sure. As for Arkansas, they're just a good team. And it's always tough to go on the road and beat a good team. It's also the week before the A&M game. So that back-to-back stretch is going to be very difficult for that team to handle. But I know they can do it. They just need to step up and focus. And remember to only take it one game at a time, one week at a time. Don't look ahead. Just focus on the goal that you have At hand. The leadership in that locker room, I think, is going to be poised enough to handle that. And it was really impressive what they were able to do leadership wise last year when they were so young. Some other games that we can take a look at are at Tennessee, at Ole Miss, and at LSU. If Alabama does go undefeated, you can go back and look at their schedule and use it as proof because this road schedule is brutal. It's never easy to play on the road let alone play five top 25 teams on the road in a single season. You hope the durability and the composure can stay attacked for them, and I think they have a perfect opening game against Utah State at home, who won a bunch of games last season. So they're a good team. It's a night game, which will be great for the fans to kick off the year. I'm excited. I pleaded my case. I think that this will be a really fun team to watch. You can use their – once they go undefeated, you can use their schedule as proof. They endured an incredible gauntlet on the road. Incredible gauntlet on the road. It's going to be tough, but this team is going to be electric, and I can't wait for the haters to text me when Alabama is down 21-14 at the half to some team, and they, and they end up coming back to win by three touchdowns in the end. Moving on to NFL news, another debate topic here, which I find to be very interesting for the New England Patriots, the Patriots... It looks like we'll not have an offensive coordinator for the upcoming season. It seems that senior football advisor Matt Patricia will be emerging as the play caller. But Belichick said in a press conference that everything is still a process. They're figuring things out. You could definitely tell that he's annoyed with the media as always with the constant questions. But how can you blame him? You let go of McDaniels and you bring in nobody with a second-year QB who is ready to make a massive leap in Mac Jones. So yeah, when there's no offensive-minded coach guiding him out there, grooming him to become an elite quarterback in this league, there's some concern at hand, and I know some Patriots fans that are also concerned. I think that it's a huge mistake not to bring someone in, and I'm not going to take away Belichick's football genius and the mind that he has that he's always thrived on. You know, his understanding of the game is unmatched, but, but this is really just a head-scratcher to me and to many other media members out there. You know, you're in the AFC, which, remember, the AFC is unbelievably stacked this year, where the offensive firepower is the highest it's ever been with teams like the Bills, Chargers, Raiders, Dolphins, Chiefs. The list goes on and on. And, you know, two of those teams that I just listed are in your own division. So only two teams, I believe, from the AFC East are going to make it to the playoffs. The battle between the Dolphins and the Patriots for that second slot this year is going to be a battle. It's going to be real. And not only do the Dolphins have a top 10 defense, they added Tyree Kill, a top five receiver in the NFL, Chase Edmonds running back, along with some other offensive weapons. In addition, they added Mike McDaniel from San Francisco, who's a genius on the offensive side of the ball. So they came ready to swing. Tua Tagovailoa has all of the weapons he needs. It's just going to fall on him. It's going to fall on Tua. The question everyone's arising, is he going to be able to handle the pressure? Is he going to be able to make those passes? Is he going to be able to sling that ball like he used to in college? Also, not to mention for the Patriots, James White. The Patriots' secondary back just retired. So you have to fill in another hole there, which is spelling trouble for New England. And you want to guess what the first game of the year is? It's Patriots and Dolphins on the first NFL Sunday. So that's going to be one of the best games of the day. Definitely the best game in the 12 p.m. slot. You know, this situation is going to be one to keep an eye on. And if you notice the Patriots offense struggling, it's not going to fall on Mac Jones or any of the offensive weapons that they have. It's not even going to fall on Matt Patricia. It's going to fall on Bill Belichick because he's the one making the choices for the betterment of his team. He could easily go out and get an offensive-minded coach, an offensive coordinator for this year, but he's relying on himself, Patricia, and other coaches to you know, make those play calls. So when you have greatness in your resume, like Bill Belichick does, the pressure and the blame is always going to fall on your lap, so be aware of that. All right, now let's hop into our interview with Sports Illustrated baseball writer, Nick Selby. This was an awesome interview. Nick is a great guy and his knowledge about baseball and the ins and outs of the game are exponential. So without further delay, here is Nick Selby. Okay, guys, we now welcome on a very special guest. It is Sports Illustrated baseball writer, Nick Selby. He also covers football and some other sports on the side. Nick, glad you could join the show. The trade deadline just occurred last week, and we're going to get into many different areas and aspects of it. But first, Nick, just give me your initial reactions from the deadline and just your overall perspective on what went down last week, what we learned as fans.
1: Well, hey, Sam, thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be here. Um, Certainly an active trade deadline, Uh, quite a lot going on. All but one team, that one team being the Rockies, made at least one trade on Tuesday. So there was everyone had a little bit of something going on. The The headliner really was obviously the Padres acquiring Juan Soto from the Nationals. Um, I just think this the people who wrote the script of this season just did a really great job having the Padres get Juan Soto from the Nationals as the Dodgers were trying to get Juan Soto and then have the Padres visit the Dodgers this past weekend and then get swept. So building up that rivalry quite a bit, that was a really fun little twist there. Um, but I think you really saw... The a lot of teams that were certainly contenders and had their eyes towards the playoffs make big, you know, push their chips in to kind of, whether it's to get a Juan Soto or the Twins got three different pitchers when they really needed some pitching help. So there was quite a bit of of activity and I think that um, the the next two months will be a a good appetizer sort of for what the playoffs are going to be.
0: Totally. And we're going to get into that Juan Soto deal a little bit later. We're going to dive into that series that was just played out over the weekend. But first, before we get into that, who were your winners and losers of this deadline, especially with teams hoping to make deep runs into the playoffs, deep runs into October? Who do you think took a leap forward? And who do you think, in your mind, took a step back from making a potential long run?
1: Well, let's start start with the Padres. Um, obviously, that that's a trade that not only helps them for this push, but obviously for the next, you know, three playoff runs. Cause Juan Soto is just, unlike any other star that's been traded, usually they're on the last year of their deal. Um, you know, it's, it's a rental before they hit free agency. They're going to have Soto for the next three Octobers. So that's really, they, they sacrifice quite a bit of prospects um, and, you know, I guess long-term talent, but it's not just a short-term rental play. Like that's, that's a massive, massive acquisition. Uh, I think the Yankees really did well too. They they lean on their pitching, and they got a really good one from the A's and Frankie Montas. Um, they the, the Jordan Montgomery trade I thought was really interesting for them. They got a true center fielder, a guy who when he's healthy, and Harrison Bader from the Cardinals could really be an impact, and he's also around for next year too. So um, the Yankees didn't need more help. They were they were on quite a roll before before the trade deadline. Uh, hit a bit of a speed bump here, but those are. Two really big winners that stand out in my mind. Uh, other teams did some interesting and, and cool moves too, but I think those are kind of the two main ones for me at least.
0: You mentioned the Yankees in that speed bump they're on right now. They've lost some games since the trade deadline, haven't been as as quality as a team as they, as they have been throughout the season. Are you? Do you have any concern about the Yankees, or do you think this is only a minor temporary problem that they're working out as a team?
1: I mean, they were on pace for like 100 15 wins or so and that's just as good as they are that's just not sustainable in the 100 plus years of baseball it's been you know like two teams that have done have done that so lean times were coming I don't I mean if you're in New York you're probably hitting the panic button just because there's nothing else to do other than panic about this current skid but uh, I don't think there's anything anything concerning that pitching in the playoffs is what's going to take you for a deep run and nobody has a pitching depth like the Yankees do and, they, the pitching was, for the most part, fine um, during that little skidding into the Mariners and the Cardinals. Um, so it's, the, the, the bats won't be that quiet for, for too long. Aaron Jones is too good. They have too many quality hitters. And there's just too many pitchers for all of them to hit a rough patch at the same time uh, come October. So, now I still think that the Yankees the, – the Yankees and Astros are the two top dogs in the American League, in my view at least.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And what about the Mets, the team, the other team in New York who's also <laughs> having a standout year? You know, I know all the fans are pulling for a hopeful subway series world series. If that were to happen, that would be electric in my mind. Um, but what do you think of them? What do you think of the Mets? Where do you think their ceiling is? How do you think they did in the trade deadline? And based on what I saw this weekend, tuning into the brave series, They looked very strong, and just give me give me your opinions on the long term success of the Mets.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love what the Mets are doing. They're just obviously committed to spending, and they don't. There's no price that's going to be too steep for them to to make a contending team. They were relatively quiet at the trade deadline. Um, Didn't add really any huge pieces. I'm sure that they were, you know, the Juan Soto deal and just the price maybe got too steep for them, but. They, you know, they got Dan Vogelbach and they got some bullpen help, but I mean, this is like such a cliche thing, but like getting Jacob DeGrom at the trade deadline is as big an addition as anybody could ever get. And he, if anyone was worried that he was going to lose, uh, lose a tick on his fastball or not be as sharp as he has been for the last five or so years, um, he's definitely put that out of people's minds with his two just ridiculous starts um, since he's come off the injured list. So, uh, I would love the freeway series. Um, that would be obviously really fun. And the Mets Mets fans have had not a lot to get excited about uh, in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years or so. And this team certainly has every bit as much firepower as any other contender.
0: Totally. That's what I'm pointing for as a baseball fan. That's what I think a lot of people are pointing for. Let's talk more in depth about this Soto deal. Do you think that this was the right move for the Padres considering they have the Dodgers within their division, let alone the NL. Do you think that adding Soto, you know, a $400 million player is enough for them to prevail over the gauntlet they'd have to endure, not just with the Dodgers, but with all of those teams in the National League during the playoffs? 100%.
1: 100%. And, you know, the pro- pro- this is not to speak down about any of the players that the Padres gave up for Juan Soto and Josh Bell. Um, all highly regarded prospects and Mackenzie Gore has been pitching really well in his rookie season at the, the big leagues this year. But prospects, the idea of a top prospect is often greater than what the prospect actually becomes once he reaches the major leagues. There's there's a lot of risk in in just banking that these guys are going to develop once they get to the big leagues. And you know, maybe maybe the guys they give up, CJ Abrams, is gonna be an all-star, but having locking in two and a half years of Juan Soto, who is a generational hitter um, and having him for what should be a playoff caliber team each of the, this year, the next years, if he'll be in San Diego, that's worth so much, I think. And that not, not only just on the field, obviously, he's going to be a great player because he's an amazing hitter. It just signals that the philosophy that we have, we know what we have and we're going to know when to push our chips in the middle metaphorically speaking. And if you're going to do that, for anybody, this is the guy I got to do that for. Just the the contract status and the type of player he is. It's just the opportunity to acquire somebody like that is just does not happen, you know, once in a decade or so. So they jumped at it, and they were not um, they were not alone in trying to get him, and and they got him. I think that that positions them really well to go toe, and if not toe to toe, because the Dodgers have more depth than anybody. Uh, they'll be right there in the upper echelon of National League for the next three years
0: yeah just speaking on the Padres like their squad in general, how long do you think that you know everyone's saying the cap is two two to three years they have two or three shots at this two or three Octobers to get this World Series within them with that with that big three of Tatis, Soto and Machado. where is, is three years the window because they have to resign everyone what's what's the window on that problem?
1: Well, I don't know that it's like three years and then it's time to rebuild again. Uh, I don't. I don't think that anybody in the um, in the Padres organization probably views it that way. They have a lot of young talent. They have a lot of reason to believe that they'll be able to keep churning up that talent. I mean, the the process that they built up to be able to get Juan Soto came from you know good scouting and good player development in the minor league. So there's reason to believe that that should continue. They should continue. They should be able to restock the coverage, so to speak, of that young talent and keep that pipeline going, whether it's to trade for more big leaders down the line or to eventually have them, you know, reach the Padres and play for the Padres themselves. Uh, but there's lots of good players that are under control for longer than three years. You know, they, they locked up uh, Joe Musgrove. They have Jake Cronenworth still, you know, yet to hit free agency. Um, they have, you know, just a lot of good organizational depth, even if they did give up quite a bit of it to get Soto. So I don't think that this will be, you know, come 2024. It's time to start all over. I think they'll they'll be able to to stay to stay competitive, especially with you know having Tatis for virtually the rest of his career. Um, then I don't think that this is a necessarily the narrowest have to do it now window. Obviously, if Soto were, were to leave, then that would that would change things a little bit. But I think that they're in a good position long term for sure.
0: Yeah. So we know that the big 3 of like like I just said Tatís, Soto and Machado, we, we everybody knows who those guys are. We know some of the pitching they have. But where do you see wh- what could be the holes in that squad that could, you know, hold them back from prevailing and making a deep run in this playoff? What is a part of their roster that you have questions about or before the deadline you had questions about?
1: Well, before the deadline, I mean, I think I think relief pitching is, is kind of like the undoing of any good team um, in the playoffs. Like, that's just one area where it can, you know, you have a group of five or so pitchers that are going to make, not going to pitch that many innings, but they're going to pitch the most consequential innings. And the Padres did not have a bad bullpen uh, before the deadline. But getting, I haven't mentioned Josh Hader yet. That's kind of one that, and an in, in in all-star caliber closing that they just happened to get at the deadline as well. Um, that's huge. That's going to be that's going to be massive uh, for them. So I think that that if that was a potential issue, it's definitely been been shored up um, by getting a guy like Hayter, who I think I could be wrong here on my map, but I'm pretty sure that he has the highest strikeout rate ever in baseball history. Uh, so he's he's a guy that the strikeouts tend to go up in the class and he's a guy that definitely can can miss bats with the best of them. Um, so that's, that's an issue that I think is, um, has been addressed. And then rotation wise, you know, I've been uh, on the record, off the record in, in writing breakdowns, not the biggest Blake Snell span. I just, I, I don't think he's very reliable, but he's on an absolute heater right now. He just had a tough luck loss last night against the giants, but that he would be a guy who I would consider as a bit of a question mark come playoff time. But if he can keep this form up, then, uh, that would be a much less concern of mine for
0: them yeah and you did have that experience with the rays a couple years ago in the world series so he does have experience in deep playoff runs kind of kind of shifting gears here with you nick uh is there a team out there that you think could fly under the radar and make a run to win the whole thing come october or do you think it's going to be you know remain a race of the top teams with the mets yankees dodgers astros you know those type of teams
1: yeah, you know, those are obviously the headliners. They've made deep runs in, in recent years, well, with the exception of the Mets, um, but they're certainly uh, quite loaded this year. I think I've always – I've had my eye on the Mariners for some time. Um, they're not quite as as hot as they were coming into the All-Star break. Uh, I know they've missed Julio Rodriguez a little bit, but that's a team that, you know, if they could get into the playoffs, which they haven't been able to do in two decades, uh, I just think that, that, that they could be a team to catch fire. Uh, they, they have young talent. Um, they've done well against the Astros this year, relatively speaking. Um, so if they were to meet up with Houston, uh, I think that would be that would be a tricky for early opponent for the Astros if they were to make it that far. And I mentioned earlier, the Twins really really addressed their pitching issues, um, which is just huge in general. But in, in a postseason series, you're going to need um, you can never have too many reliable bullpen arms, and they got an extra starter in Tyler Maley. So I think that they're a team that come playoff time can be much better than what you know. The team as it existed for most of the postseason. So those are kind of the under the radar squads that I would that I would keep my eye on um, uh, what, come October against those those bigger teams you mentioned.
0: Yeah, I know they have that rookie sensation. He's you said he's missed some time recently.
1: Yeah, he he got hit by a pitch um, one of the first games after the break, and I I haven't checked to see if he's played in recent games. but I know he missed like a week or so um probably should have fact-checked that before then, but he it's not something that I don't think is going to be long-term um, regardless. So once he gets back, uh, Julio already is certainly the AL rookie of the year front-runner for me at least.
0: Yeah, so keep your eye on the Mariners. Staying on the topic of flying under the radar, you wrote an article about some under-the-radar signings that happened within the deadline, which and you gave five names, five players, five deals that happened. Which of those five you mentioned do you think will be the most impactful or will have the most long-term or immediate success?
1: Well, let's see. So immediate success, um, hmm. you know, I, I mentioned earlier, the the Yankees trade, trading Jordan Montgomery to the Cardinals for Harrison Bader was interesting for both teams. I talked about it kind of from the Yankees perspective earlier, but for the Cardinals, they, they needed – they Need starting pitching. They had Miles Mikolas and Adam Wainwright and not a lot else from a reliability standpoint. They got Jordan Montgomery from the Yankees. They got Jose Quintana from the Pirates. Not huge names, not Cy Young All-Star Caliber pitchers, but solid pitchers. And Montgomery made his debut for the Cardinals, ironically, against the Yankees over the weekend and pitched great. He went five scoreless. I think he had give up just one hit. Um, so he probably, you know, might have known some in-depth scouting reports from his former teammates but that is that they needed another starter they could trust in october and i think that from the short term that's going to pay off big for them uh long term the the angels and phillies made a very interesting trade to me in which the phillies got a center fielder brandon marsh who i believe is 24 he's in the second year the bigs and the Angels got a minor league catcher logan ojave who was one of the Phillies' top prospects and is now the Angels' top prospect. Um, Double-A catcher, supposed to be very good defensively can hit, um, could be the Angels' catcher of the future. But for the Phillies, you know, when they put their team together this year, they really went all in on offense and didn't really care about defense. Um, they, a lot of their players that they acquired were not known to be, you know, excellent fielders, Kyle Schwarber, chief among them. But, you know, when Bryce Harper went down, they, their outfield defense really suffered – and marsh has not hit as well as the angels had hoped and he has the highest strikeout rate in the majors. but he is an excellent defensive outfielder he's been playing the corners with the angels um because Mike Trout obviously is you know the center fielder but he'll move to center he's he's a you know gold glove caliber center fielder i think he's going to really help the Phillies. and if they can develop his bout like the angels were not able to then that's an all-star caliber talent who has five more years of control that could be a really huge gift for the Phillies, who really needed a you know an impact up the middle defender who if they can make him you know enable him to hit more then that's a potential all-star caliber player right there
0: you brought up an interesting you know debate or dynamic that we can get into now what do you think is more important come you know playoff time winning a world series is it the defensive aspect of a team or is it you know offensive hitting and you know firepower at the plate
1: you know, playoff games are are lower scoring, uh, especially in the last five years, as teams really moved away from leaning on a starting pitcher to get 21 outs or whatever. Um, teams teams go to the bullpen way quicker. Um, they leave their bullpen arms out there longer. So, if you have, you know, three reliable relief pitchers, you can count them to get 12 outs, um, sometimes more. So that I think that makes it harder for hitters. They're they're getting guys. With their, you know, they're, they're not playing every day in the playoffs. You have days off in between travel days. Um, they're they're getting fresher pitchers, and they're they're not seeing they're seeing the best pitchers. You know, they're not seeing any number five starters in the of series. So, I think run prevent run prevention is um, that much more important in the playoffs. So, teams that pitch and defend well typically are the ones that make the deep runs. Um, I think that there's more of a likelihood that you know, a deep and loaded lineup can get shut down versus a team that has great pitching and defense getting shelled by that great offense. So, you know, it, it it's cyclical. You can find a team whose bats all get hot and they just bash everybody and that's that. But I think generally speaking, it's the teams that can prevent runs. Um, that's why, you know, the Cardinals have made a lot of deep postseason runs over the years because they historically are really sound defensively and pitching wise. So, Teams like that are, are where I kind of try to find okay, who's positioned to make a run here?
0: Yes, defense wins championships.
1: It's clear. I don't want to say it, but it's true. It's right there. It's a cliche for a reason, you know?
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, you mentioned the the angels there for a little bit when talking about some of the under the radar moves. Uh, what what is what's wrong with the angels? What I mean, what what's well, how, how much time them?
1: do you have? You know, how much time is this podcast? Because that's a that's an answer or question that requires a long answer.
0: Um, <laughs> give me as as long as long of an answer as you want.
1: So yeah, I mean the the main issue for the this year at least is is the depth. There's there's no there's no depth. They have, they're built on stars, high priced stars, Mike Trout, Anthony Rendon. Shohei is not high priced, but he is a star. And, you know, there's not a lot behind them, not a lot supporting them. So when, if, if some of them get injured, like Trout and Rendon have been, or go through, you know, periods of, of a slump, there's not other players to carry the load. And it, that's just been the Angels' undoing every year since, you know, the last mid-playoffs, which is 2014. Um, usually it's been pitching development. The Angels have not had good pitching in a while. The pitching actually has been pretty good this year. Um, especially in the second half, but offensively, they—I believe—they hit uh, 199 in the month of July, which is not good. Um, they could not cannot score runs. Mike Child has been out, um, so I think—and you know their farm system by any of the of the prospect farm system rankings is ranked in the bottom five of the league. So there's not a lot of young talent in the pipeline. Paints a pretty bleak picture of uh, the, the immediate future here. Um, so yeah, I think that from a player development standpoint, they have not shown to be among the, at least even the average, I believe they've been below average. And when you, you know, luring in big name players in free agency is nice, but you, you leverage, you, you overextend yourself so much that you need those players to be productive. And if they're not, there's not a lot to, to lean on to the back of plan B, plan C, plan D. So this year the Angels have been out of backup plans and everything is falling apart. So, you know, organizationally, they fired the manager midseason. I have no idea who will be the next manager. The general manager, Perry Manassian, is in his second year. So he hasn't really had time to really make, you know, shape his roster from the the ground up. So it's going to take a lot of work to, uh, to turn that ship around. And, you know, with Shohei Otani, next year is his last year before he hits free agency the urgency is extremely high to figure it out. And I just don't know if there's enough time to, to to salvage this in a year's time from now.
0: Yeah, interesting. It, especially with, you know, a player, world one of the best players in the MLB, if not the best player on your team, you I'm sure the stress has to be quite high on, on their end for sure. I'm curious about this because I, I do follow the MLB, but probably not as much as I should compared to other sports. But how do you think the MLB trade deadline yourself itself uh, from other major league deadlines.
1: you know it's interesting. I think baseball is unique, you know compared to football and basketball where trading player like trades midseason trades happen in basketball and somewhat in football not quite as often, um, but certainly not to the level that it does in baseball. Baseball's interesting where you can take a player from one team to the another team and yeah, teams will have the different philosophies and and signals. If you're a pitcher and catcher, they have different you know, signals. But it's not – strategy-wise, things don't change. It's still baseball. If you're a pitcher, you're going to try to get the big batter out. Um, if you're a hitter, you know how to hit. Hitting is – no matter what jersey you're wearing, you're going to try to beat the pitcher in front of you. Uh, football basketball, there's different offensive philosophies. There's, you know, more intricate playbooks. Um, so going from one team to another in the middle of a season – it's difficult to build you know, build the chemistry with your teammates that is required um, to have a successful team in, in basketball or football uh, as it is compared to baseball where you can take a guy from one lineup, put him in another lineup, and it's just plug and play. The game doesn't get much more complicated regardless of who your teammates are or what the strategy is, generally speaking.
0: Yeah, all that makes sense to me. All that's, all that's very good. Last question for you, Nick. This has been awesome. Uh, just give me your World Series prediction, and who do you think is going to take home the title this year?
1: Ooh, so, you know, the being a writer, you make on-record predictions a lot, and I have a hard time keeping track of what they are. So I know that I have made a prediction last month or so. I don't remember what it was. I'm not going to try to be consistent. I'll just try to assess it as it is now. I have a hard time picking against the Dodgers, uh, not for many you know, fan loyalty. I just, I'm not even a Dodgers fan, but I just think that they're the depth that they've put together in the last decade and the deep pockets they have. They, it's, they, they have, they have the system down. It, it sort of runs itself like, sort of like Alabama football without all the championships. They just, it's just, it's a machine. Um, so I really have a hard time picking against them in the National League. In the American League, I would be inclined to lean towards the Astros. Um, they've kind of they've kind of been overshadowed by the Yankees, especially you know in the in the first half. But they're a loaded team as well. So I think I think that they're definitely positioned. They have a lot of young pitchers. Justin Berlander, I haven't said his name yet, but he's completely returned to form from Tommy John surgery and, and looks like a side Young candidate again. So I think Astros and Dodgers is not a very bold pick, but it would be a fun World Series to have that rematch. Obviously, given the history between those two, if I have to pick a winner. I would lean towards the Dodgers in a seven game series against the Astros. I think that that would be a fitting fall classic and it would be a lot of fun. if That is what is that, that that's how it shakes out.
0: Oh yeah. I would totally love that matchup. That'd be a great world series, but only if the Astros play against, you know, the Yankees somewhere down the road, we need that rivalry renewed again. We need all the fans booing, the Astros as much as we can because I feel like we did not salivate that enough
1: yeah Yankees Yankees Astros and Dodgers Mets would just be the best final four that you could you can dream up I think everyone loves a Cinderella run but that would be a worthy you know championship series yeah sure. totally let totally. me ask you let me ask you you're in the heart of uh college football's best dynasty do you have a college football playoff prediction I know we're, we're a ways out but you want to call your shot here
0: yeah, like, do you just want me to give, uh, like my winner?
1: Well, let's go. Who, who are your four playoff teams, and then you can you can pick your winner.
0: Let's see. I actually was talking about this with a buddy of mine the other day. Um, I'm gonna go Alabama, USC. Oh, goodness. let's see here. Alabama, USC. I'm gonna put Georgia in there. I'm gonna put Ohio State in there.
1: I don't know. I don't know if you if you knew that I was a USC alum, and you're just being a gracious host and flattering your guests. Um, but that that pick stresses me out because I don't handle expectations for USC football very well because they've let me down quite a bit in the last decade. So I get the hype, and I would love for you to be correct, but I like to be a little more cautious. I want I want to see it first. I want to see what it looks like.
0: Yeah, just you're right. The hype is just everywhere, so that's why I'm. That's why I have to pick them. Lincoln Riley, they got Caleb Williams. They have a great overall team. I I believe in the hype of them. I honestly didn't even know that you were an alumni from there, so that's kind of hilarious that I said that.
1: Perfect, perfect synergy. We we it's we don't even plan this stuff. It's all it's all the magic of podcasting.
0: Yeah, and then if I had to pick the final, I would go Alabama, Ohio State, and not trying to be biased here, but I think Alabama, is, I think they could could have a perfect season and win the whole thing. I think this is one of the best, I've said this before on the podcast, but I think this could be one of the best Alabama teams to ever assemble, especially with the transfer portal going in their favor. Um, you know, the rich get richer, and I just think that coming off a year when they're not, you know, they didn't win last year, saving called a rebuilding year. I think that they're going to be the team to beat, and I don't think anyone's going to be able to stop them.
1: I love it when my rebuilding year has the Heisman Trophy-winning quarterback who comes back the next year. That's my favorite counter-rebuilding year, uh, yeah. and you lose in a championship game. So it must be nice. But, yeah, I think this could be a special damage team, um, which is saying a lot given the run they've been on the last, whatever, eight, nine years. So, yeah, I'm excited looking forward to it. I hope you're right about the Trojans.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll be rooting for them. I'll be rooting for them for, for you.
1: Love it. Appreciate it.
0: Yes, sir. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining the show. I look forward to reading more of your work. And if you guys are fans of the MLB or just fans of sports in general, make sure you go check out some of his work on sports illustrated. Nick, I hope we can stay in touch and uh, best of luck to you in the future.
1: Absolutely. Sam anytime. Thanks for having me on.
0: I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Nick Selby. We're going to finish up the show with some general sports topics and notable news from last week. Serena Williams announced her retirement from the game of tennis. This was really sad to hear, and I think we knew that this would be coming soon. Um, You know, she had been dealing with some injuries, and she was missing time in tournaments as she was climbing in age. So even though this is hard to see her go, you know, think about all the amazing things that she has done, not only for the game of tennis, but for female athletes across the world. She really did set the standard, her, her and Venus really did set the standard for women in sports and how they can, you know, they too can become legends in their own right. And if you want to, you know, back up those numbers, if there's even need for backing up, here's some career numbers for Serena Williams. Seven Australian Open titles, three French Open titles, seven Wimbledon titles, six U.S. Open titles, and you also have a gold medal at the Olympics. Not to mention, I think there was 14 doubles titles with her and Venus paired together. So, that's just greatness. That's greatness at its finest. Both her and Venus are two of the highest-earning female athletes of all time. As we know, we know their you know their struggles from their youth, where they came from, where they started. And that's just, you know, it's nothing but motivation. And um, we just wish her nothing but the best of luck in retirement. And... You know, everything that she's done in her life, that's set the table for athletes like Naomi Osaka, who is currently the highest paid female athlete in the world. Also one of the best female tennis players in the world. So, you know, just incredible what she has done uh, in her athletic career and in her life. Fernando Tatis Jr. was suspended 80 games for PED usage, which he claims was supposed to be used to cure ringworm. And dude, come on, you knew what you were doing. You can go buy Loterman at the local CVS or Walgreens for $10, but you wanted to take a PED instead. Yeah, we're not that dumb. And you cost me my Padres future, so thanks for that. I just wasted that. I talked about his return in the last podcast. That was, you know, his return was going to put the Padres over the edge, even if even if that could do it, but now you just simply don't have enough pieces to get out of the nL in the postseason and you know we talked about that in the in the in the Selby interview unfortunately the suspension happened after the interview so I was never able to ask him any questions about that that was completely unforeseen circumstances so i mean anything can happen but you really just hurt your team here you let them down and it's just disappointing makes you really think about all of the other athletes in baseball who are potentially taking peds it's just PEDs and the debate between PEDs with the association of the game of baseball is just all very interesting and just just disappointing to see, especially at this point of the year when, you know, you just obtained – you just got Juan Soto in a massive deal. You were going to be the best triple threat uh, hitting order in the league. It's just – it's definitely it's, – it's a loss. It's a loss for the Padres, and, you know, if I were a Padres fan, I would definitely be let down. Some local home news for my Hurricanes fans. There are a couple things that happened this week. Some good, some bad. We could start with the bad to get it out of the way. Max Pacioretty, new addition to the Hurricanes, suffered an Achilles injury, which will keep him out for six months at the minimum. Uh, This is a major loss for the Carolina Hurricanes. If you bring... You know, you bring in Patchready to replace Nino in the left wing slot. It looked like he was going to be potentially uh, on the first line with Aho and Tara Vinen. And with that loss, now you just have a massive goal scoring hole to fill, which was a problem as we've discussed on this podcast earlier on in the episodes. That you know the Hurricanes need to fill that goal scoring hole. That's a problem they've struggled with, especially late in the playoffs. They couldn't rely on a person to put the puck in the back of the net for them. And he was going to be that guy. He's a guy you can fill up the net, and, you know, that's why they that's why they acquired him. And he's had injuries in the past, which did kind of scare me when I noticed that we, we obtained him. He hadn't been playing a full season in a while. But you just hope he has a safe and speedy recovery. But, man, it's just hard to hear. I was really excited to watch him play on opening night, see how he was going to fill in with the lineup. He will not be back until after the All-Star break. So the Hurricanes in result now bring in Sony Milano from the Anaheim Ducks. He's a young former first-rounder out of 2014. He has some good game in him, so hopefully he can contribute to the team quickly and could be an asset on the wing until Pacioretty's back. If you remember that insane goal from uh, the Anaheim Ducks last year, one of the best goals of the year where Trevor Zegras alley-ooped the puck over the net to his teammate for the batting goal. That was Milano who batted it in. So this kid, you know, he has chemistry with players. He has skill to his game. And we'll see what happens there. We'll see. Hopefully he can contribute while Pacioretty is out until he returns. The good news is Martin Natchez re with the Hurricanes. Two years, $3 million value per year. A good move by the Hurricanes. It was the right move. We saw what he was capable of doing two seasons ago. We know where his ceiling is. And I don't even think he has reached his ceiling. I think we're just barely seeing the crack of it. And, you know, when he broke out two years ago, I think that's the player he can be. And it's the player that he can improve on being. You know, I bet he's working hard this offseason. As we know, his season last year was nowhere near where he produced the year before. And I can't wait to see him play again. You know, his speed and skill is crazy. It's unteachable. You know, when he wants to be aggressive and rip the puck in the net, he can. He's a player that you just couldn't let walk away. You know, he's been in the Canes organization forever. And it just just seems right that we're not letting him walk. And the value that they signed him at is appropriate, too. It's not too long. It's not too expensive. But this is the time for him to step up. You know, we gave him the money that we thought he deserved. And he was fine with that. And he just needs to come back and play. He's one of the most fun players to watch on that team so I think he knows that well he does know he knows that he needs to step up he's admitted to it in his press conference at the end of the year and it's just time to see what he has all right guys that's it for this episode of on the DL podcast as always thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast the support I've been receiving recently has been tremendous I'm really excited for future episodes and for providing more content to you guys and I will see you guys next Tuesday.